The 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 0111911. All right, Craig, thank you. It is uh, Tuesday, January 30th, 2023. In about an hour, we're going to have a conversation with Mike White, owner of uh, Boo Boo Records. We'll talk about Boo Boo's and its history. We'll talk about records. We're just going to talk. Uh, Mike's always an interesting guy. This hour, I have uh, resisted talking about the events and the tragedy in Memphis, Tennessee, because it just boggles the mind that something like this could happen. But I am especially interested in the police response that resulted uh, in the murder. There's no other way to, to phrase it. The murder of Tyree Nichols, 29 years old. And I'm just wondering why when there were five police officers and multiple emergency uh, responders, and then it turns out there were an additional two police officers, all these people involved somehow in public safety, in essence, they became a mob. Um, Here's one article. One of the most disturbing aspects of the death of Tyree Nichols is the number of police officers the video showed taking part in the beating or standing by and doing nothing. Five officers have been fired and charged with second-degree murder, aggravated assault, aggravated kidnapping, official misconduct, and official oppression in the attack. Two deputies and two Memphis Fire Department employees who appeared on the scene after the beating have had occurred were also fired. What one expert said, it comes down to the psychology of policing. Always good to be in conversation with good friend and regular contributor to this broadcast, Dr. Larry Lockman, author and psychologist. I asked him to join us today to Try to make sense out of the senseless. Why did the police respond the way that they did? Uh, Larry, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us, sir. You have you have watched the video, and I'm going to admit up front, other than a few clips, I have not been able to bring myself to see it. Yeah, it's uh, not easy to watch. Um, and I think we want to first give our condolences to obviously Mr. Tyree Nichols's family back in Tennessee for the loss. Um, when you lose a parent, spouse, or child, uh, it's devastating. Uh, Mr. Nichols was a 29-year-old male who was a father to a four-year-old son. So that son is going to be going through some challenges. And he was known as a avid skateboarder, photographer, and it was originally from Sacramento. He had arrived in Memphis just prior to the COVID pandemic and began working with FedEx. And yes, so Saturday, January 7th, Mr. Nichols was allegedly driving reckless or speeding. However, to date, the Memphis police chief, uh, Chief Cerulean Davis, has not found any documented proof supporting that probable cause claim. And after his arrest, he complained about shortness of breath and eventually was taken to the hospital and he died 
Tuesday, January 10th. And as you alluded, this past Friday, January 27th, the city of Memphis released a four-part video footage on the Vimeo, and it shows officers dragging Mr. Nichols uh, from his car, shouting profanities. One officer tries to deploy the taser. Following that, Mr. Nichols um, got free, began running on foot uh, with his sweatshirt half off with officers chasing. They located him uh, shortly after, a few blocks away, not too far from his mother's house. And the uh, street cam footage shows officers uh, kicking, uh, repeatedly kicking, punching, uh, using a metal collapsible baton, striking uh, Mr. Nichols uh, while he's either kneeling or standing or half sitting down or lying on his side. And when I watched the video, uh, the video one goes from 20 to, uh, starts at 2024 20, uh, hours, um, and three officers are yelling at Mr. Nichols to effing get out of the car. He responds, I didn't do anything. Officer states, I will tase your ass. Multiple yelling commands coming from three different officers simultaneously. And that's when he was, uh, he ran off. And then video two, starting at 2032 hours, four officers, two unmarked cars, uh, have Mr. Nichols and they're trying to get him, uh, kneeling, repeatedly kicked him in the face, repeatedly hit him with a collapsible baton on the upper back, punched him in the face repeatedly with a couple of haymakers as well, swings with the fist, and uh, while two other officers were restraining him. And then, uh, and while he was standing up, then they got him on the ground. They finally, quote, proned him on his stomach, unquote. And, uh, from 2032 hours to 2057 hours for 25 minutes, about a half hour, no one, including two fire rescue personnel, gave him first aid or attempted to treat his injuries or assess his state of consciousness. And in about 2055 hours, 23 minutes after the assault, uh, I observed from the footage that Mr. Nichols appeared to be moving less and less potentially suggesting losing consciousness with very little movement and no first aid or no assessment uh, was made. And so that's what I observed on the videos. And I know when you first reach out to me, you uh, had some questions about, I guess, what people referred to as mob mentality and why did no one render yeah. help and why do the officers all engage in that behavior and as we go there i would also point out that the five cops who were initially uh, fired and then arrested were part of a specialized team called scorpion which has now been uh, since disbanded and i would think as a psychologist there's something here larry about uh, being part of a special group where loyalty is prized above all you know, that's a good point. Yeah, um, correct. The initial five officers that were involved directly with the striking, kicking, punching, pepper spraying, collapsible batoning were all members of this unit, Scorpion, which was an acronym. It stands, or you, I should say it stood for Street Crime Operations to Restore Peace in Our Neighborhoods. It's kind of a kind of a morbid um, irony that that's what they named it. It's been disbanded. The officers involved were Demetrius Haley, 
Emmett Martin III, Desmond Mills Jr., Justin Smith. They were terminated and they now face criminal charges, including secondary murder, aggravated assault, aggravated kidnapping, official misconduct, and official oppression. Since then, I believe a sixth and potentially seventh officer has been relieved of duty, in addition to two county deputy sheriffs who were on the scene. And uh, I, I last heard three fire personnel, including... Uh, I'm not sure if she was a lieutenant or captain that sat in the cab of the uh, fire engine. So, yeah, there's a couple of things that from social psychology came up for me. And I want to make, you know, this clear, Dave, that, you know, many times people accuse psychologists or shrinks, so to speak, as making excuses for people's behavior. And so even if we look at contributing factors or behaviors, no one is excusing the behavior. No one's trying to let people off. But it's important that we look at what was going on so we can prevent it and change it. So well, no one's making excuses for the officer's behavior. Well, let me jump in so, here, Dr. Lockman, because this will probably be a good time to take the first break, and then we can okay. come back and focus specifically on the so-called mob mentality at, at issue here or the so-called contagion effect. What exactly was happening with this police response? Dr. Larry Lockman back on Hometown Radio. Quick break. We'll come back and continue the conversation. I hope you'll stick around. We're talking about Memphis. We're trying to figure out why seven cops beat an armed man to death over possible reckless driving allegation. And as we're back with uh, psychologist and author Dr. Larry Lockman, this is reminiscent in some ways, Larry, to George Floyd, in that there were several officers who stood there and did nothing as the officer uh, killed, essentially, uh, George Floyd. So now, in this case, people are asking, why didn't, you know, what, what sparked these police officers to act the way that they did? The article I read talked about the contagion effect, which I guess is similar to the term groupthink. So from a psychological point of view, uh, explain the theory, please. So um, in 2020... We had 798,000 full-time police officers in the United States, 2021, 660,000. And estimate this year, we have close to 800,000 uh, full-time police officers, so just under a million. And there's 18,000 law enforcement agencies. So that's the background and context. So the term mob mentality, also known as herd mentality, was introduced by two social psychologists in 1895, Gabriel Tardet and Gustave Le Bon in their book, The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind. And their bottom line is the agreement or consensus of a decision or action to be done is often driven by a social pressure to conform, a natural desire to fit in, and not cause waves in your primary group. And so even though, for example, during the Salem witch trials, many people knew this was bunk, there weren't witches, they went along to not be standed out, ostracized, or accused to be witching witches themselves. You mentioned groupthink. So Dr. Stephen Franzoy, in the book Social Psychology, defines groupthink as a deficiency of mental efficiency, lack of reality testing, a suspension of our moral judgments in order to reach a consensus with the group, 
basically going along to get along, to not be singled out as disloyal, unworthy, or even as a traitor. And there's three things that contribute to this groupthink. Number one, the more tightly knit, and you mentioned the Scorpion unit Scorpion. was really yeah. a special tight unit. So yeah. there we go, the first criteria for groupthink. High group cohesiveness, the tighter the group, the more likely the uh, of, do, of engaging in groupthink, suspending your critical analytical ability and your moral judgment to get along to go along. The second requirement is a threatening or stressful situation. Now, you can argue who, who escalated the stress in this case, but the stressful or threatening situation will force the person, the person in this tight, cohesive group to potentially suspend their moral judgment and to go with the group or herd mentality. And then number three, which I think also applies to this uh, situation, you've heard a lot of former police officers, supervisors on CNN talk about this, procedural faults. If you have lack of well-trained procedures to follow, those three combinations, high group cohesiveness, a threatening or stressful situation, and procedural faulty procedures, is a recipe ripe for what you were talking about with group contagion. Well, and I would also think this ties into Memphis because one police officer starts it, the others follow the herd. This is true. This is true. And what is core, what connects with the group think and the contagion, uh, the mob mentality, herd mentality, whatever terms you want to use, is two very important social psychology principles that I've seen over and over again personally. And that is diffusion of responsibility and de-individuation. I know it sounds like a lot of psychobabble, but diffusion of responsibility, basically the bystander effect. The more people that are present, the less likely any one person is going to help or render aid. And we saw in that street cam, you just mentioned seven or eight officers, uh, two fire rescue, then a couple of deputy sheriffs came up, and then the ambulance came. The more people present in a help needed situation, the less any one person is going to stand up and do the right thing because they think someone else is going to do it or because there's so many people they're not responsible anymore. And the classic case of that was Kitty Genovese, I think, in the Kitty 1960- Genovese in yeah. New York. She was yeah. walking home between two apartment buildings. An attacker stabbed her and then left. She was still breathing while bleeding out. People watched from their uh, high tenement apartments in New York did nothing because they thought, well, look at all the other people watching. Someone probably already called the police. The attacker came back and finished the job, and Kitty Genovese was stabbed 137 times. In front of dozens of people, and nobody helped her. Nobody helped. And so when I tell my psychology students when we review the bystander effect, I say never assume that someone else helped, especially when you're around other people, call. And about half the time... When I see a disabled car or a car accident, whatever, no one's called because they thought someone else called. So I always call. Hmm. Uh, well, the other curious about this is that the five police officers were all black. And so that's curious because? Well, normally we, we, we see these cases like George Floyd and it's white on black. 
You know, the right. office, the officers right. are white and uh, something happens to a black motorist and we have all the charges of, of racism. But in this case, all five officers were also black. True. And there were statements like, I hope they stomp their ass. I'm going to tase your ass. So one officer was obviously pissed off because he had pepper spray back in his eyes. And he started getting personally uh, irritated and anger, and the anger took over. Another officer, in listening and watching the video, kept limping around with his right leg. He somehow strained or hurt his right leg doing this incident, and he was pissed off. Another officer, if you listen and watch the videos, in the altercation, uh, a pair of glasses flew off and one of his lens popped out. That's why they were looking around. They were letting Mr. Nichols just sit there without aid, and they were enlisting all the officers to walk around and look with their flashlights for the lens that popped out of the glasses. They were pissed off. So losing your temper, not having any procedures, and then also being in a tight unit where the responsibility is spread over everybody, like one big organism, and then having a clouding or loss of individual identity while loosening your normal inhibitions to act out immorally, that person is going to merge their identity with the group and behave like the group is one big organism that dilutes their sense of responsibility and culpability for their behavior. And one classic example of psychology we can talk about uh, is the Stanford prisoner or the Stanford prison experiment conducted in 1971. Uh, Zimbardo? Was that the Zimbardo? Philip Zimbardo, a research psychologist, took uh, 24 male students. He randomly assigned uh, half for guards with authority and complete control over half the inmates in six-by-nine makeshift cells shared by three people. This experiment was supposed to go on for two weeks. They were going to see if healthy people who knew that they were in a psychology experiment would change their behavior in a prison-like setting. They had to cut that uh, experiment short because the guards all together started diffusing responsibility, got an us-them mentality, and started physically abusing and being cruel to the volunteer prisoners. And the volunteer prisoners started actually decompensating and having serious anxiety and depression and stress reactions. They had to stop that. And these are all volunteers. Mm. So in 45 seconds before the news break, Dr. Lockman, the so-called contagion effect group think, is this a common experience? Do we see a lot of this? Yeah, not, not, with such, not always with such fatal consequences. But people will behave differently if there's a sense of anonymity and you're not alone. Right? So when people have fake handles on Facebook or uh, on the Internet, or people anonymously are stalking you and you don't know their identity or license plate or where they're coming from, or people in a group setting can kind of merge and hide and do things they normally won't do. People will behave uh, less self-aware and less impulse control in a group setting, especially, as we mentioned, the group is tightly cohesive, there's a stressful challenge, and there's no well-trained and well-spelled-out procedures of what to do. All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to California Headline News, ABC Radio News. Craig updates us with time-saver traffic and weather together. We will continue with author and psychologist Dr. Larry Lockman.
trying to make sense of the senseless as we focus on Memphis, your phone calls and text messages still to come. If you're just joining us, my guest is author and psychologist, Dr. Larry Lockman. We're talking about Memphis. We're talking about five to seven police officers and uh, numerous emergency medical personnel uh, who either ignored or were involved in the death of Tyree Nichols. And Dr. Lockman is explaining to us things like groupthink and the contagion effect. As uh, we are back with you, Larry, the article I sent you, I think is a relevant quote here. If the officers have to use physical restraint, there can be a contagion effect where one or more officers escalating level of force heightens the force used by the other officers and so on. That's where it all comes from, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, when you have a tight, cohesive unit, you know, you're going to um, back up your uh, comrade, so to speak. And remember, there's, there's you know, in a lot of intense um, settings, whether it's military, law enforcement, even to the, some point in the medical field, uh, you back up your colleagues or else uh, they may not back you up when you need it. You know, all of a sudden I had the, the view from the movie Serpico with um, – the actor who played Serpico, Al Pacino, Al Pacino right. and when he was working with internal affairs and he got his hand stuck in the door and he got shot in the cheek, you know, the officers didn't back him up because they looked at him as an internal affairs snitch. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, before we talk about possible solutions, what about the medical emergency people? Because they're, they're, they weren't scorpions. They weren't part of that original group why didn't they do anything yeah there's a pecking order and there's dominance and submission among this pecking order and um i was watching especially the fire rescue person with the blonde hair without the hat and he kept looking over his right shoulder kept looking at his left shoulder kept looking what the police officers were doing you know and that could be interpreted as being nervous unsure and showing deference to the officers who were still uh, pissed off, blown off steam, limping, looking for their lost lens and their glasses. Um, and so I think uh, they were intimidated, unfortunately, and did not follow through with the Hippocratic Oath and get in there and render aid. And I think I read in the article you sent me that their supervisor, uh, again, I don't remember if she was a lieutenant or captain, didn't even get out of the fire truck because it was too cold. Mm. On the Stolberg-Tatum text line, uh, maybe the Memphis situation was one where absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's true. There has to be limits to all of our behavior. Now, hopefully, by age seven, we start developing internal limits uh, through proper secure attachment with our parents and consequences and punishments for bad behavior and praise and rewards and modeling for good behavior, whether it's birds, cats, dogs, or people. We have to learn to control our impulses. And if we don't have the internal 
controls, then there needs to be external controls. If you want in on the conversation with Dr. Lockman, feel free to join us, 805-543-8830 or 800-549-5832. As Dr. Lockman offers insight into the psychology of the police response in Memphis, given everything you've outlined, whether you want to call it a groupthink or contagion effect, it's not the first time it's happened. It's not the last time it's happened. What should law enforcement, public safety, be thinking about in terms of responding to situations like this? Well, from some of my law enforcement um, buddies, they've talked about, you know, even prior to COVID, and COVID made it worse, and we see it in the retail industry. They can't find enough bodies. They can't find enough people to uh, fill the vacancies in a lot of the law enforcement agency, whether it's Portland, Oregon, or locally in California. So they may be fudging or lowering some standards, which is not good. Uh, most departments want at least a bachelor's degree. I would make sure that the law enforcement candidates are going through two psychological personality tests, rather than, you know, I think I saw in an interview, or it was in the article you sent me, you know, some departments are not psych screening them because they're desperate for officers. So the MMPI, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, that should be one of the personality tests that they're screened. I had to take it when I was a child abuse social worker. Um, also, the Inwald Personality Inventory, IWI, uh, IPI, I should say, that was purposely constructed to screen out law enforcement candidates that are psychologically unfit. Uh, then there should be a uh, mandatory interview with a trained psychologist who knows what to look for and potentially can push the buttons that need to be pushed to see what that law enforcement candidate is going to respond, maybe put him in an actual scenario situation. The other thing is, uh, having a martial arts background, I spoke to a former Maryland police officer who is a first-degree black belt in Gracie Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, who spends most of his time, Dave, going around the country, he's doing it right now, training police officers in ground pins and nonviolent holds as an alternative to striking, punching, kicking, tasing, pepper spraying, or using lethal force. Larry, let he me, made some excellent yeah. points. Yeah, let me saw the videos, too. All right, hold that thought, please. Let's bring Bob and Sam Lewis into the conversation. Hey, Bob. Hi, Dave. Hi, Bob. And, and Larry, even though the five main officers in this incident were black, I still feel that policemen in particular are somehow uh, trained, cultivated, motivated. Somehow they view the black suspect somehow as superhuman that needs more violence to subdue than a white male. Your thoughts? So we do look into things like ethnic and racial identity development. It gets kind of esoteric, but the short end of that is sometimes all of us will react more strongly when someone of our own in-group, ethnicity, race, or religion, does something offensive or stupid. We may overreact because it, we feel it reflects on us, and if we have some potholes of our self-esteem and buy into majority groups' prejudices, stereotypes, and uh, derogatory statements of behavior to our group, 
we may deflect that onto someone who's more vulnerable and in a weaker state, like a suspect who is outnumbered. Uh, so there's a variety of factors, you know, with that. Uh, you can argue we all have our biases. And we, we look at our society through who we are, our belief systems. Uh, we tend to call them paradigms, worldviews, belief systems. We look through our, our ethnicity, our religion, our politics, right of center conservative, left of center progressive, whatever. And so we interface with the world through those filters, right. and they can always play a part. Right. Bob? I still feel that somehow it's like an unwritten code or something that officers always respond more on edge, more prone to violence when it's a suspect of color versus a Caucasian. Well, the statistics do back you up to sort of speak that the killing of unarmed suspects is higher with African-American males than all other groups. So there is those statistics. Now, to explain those statistics, you can have different ways of looking at it. All right. Thank you. Bob, thank you. 805-543-8830 or 800-549-5832. We go out to the Empire State for James on KVEC. Hey, James. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. What's up? I have a, a, a to add to Dr. Lotman's uh, uh, findings about police officers. I'm a former U.S. Marshal, and um, I know that uh, in the training, when I was trained, the we always knew what was going to happen. It's, okay, you're going to be trained for a stressful situation, but... Today, in today's day and age, uh, when we go out in the street, we still don't have, uh, there's, uh, there's, a, there's that feeling of, well, we don't know what's happening. When we go out and they say, well, we're going to train you to be better police officers or, bullet, or better uh, law enforcement officers, we know what to expect. So I'm thinking maybe there's a way to try and get these new police officers to come to uh, uh, a point where they don't know what's going to happen because we know what's going to happen. We know tomorrow we're going to be tested for our stress, but we have to be able, I think there's got to be a way where, well, okay, you're going to be police officers. We're going to hit you with a training exercise where you're not going to know it's a training exercise. And therefore, you're not going to know when you go into this training exercise how to how to react because this, this is going to be where uh, uh, you don't you're not going to know that it's a training exercise and it's going to be something you never expected. And I think that's something I think where police officers might benefit from that because there may be a couple, it's going to come a time where uh, uh, this way you're not going to know it's a yeah. training exercise. Let's hear from Dr. Lockman. Doctor? Yeah, uh, so piggybacking on what he's saying, the um, former officer who trains police departments in nonviolent Brazilian jiu-jitsu techniques, he watched the video, and he said that it appeared to him there was no coordinated effort, there was no specific plan, like one person is the point person giving calm instructions. They just relied on brute, blunt force. They fell back at only two tools they had, the taser and pepper spray, and then the violence. 
The officer show no reverence for life, which law enforcement officers are supposed to do. And they committed the most common mistake that most frequently leads to these scenarios, according to the, uh, the officer, the former officer who trains other officers in uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. They tried to prematurely prone Mr. Nichols on his stomach, which allows people to get their feet under them and run. Also, it escalates the tension and the stress and the combativeness, where the properly trained Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu officer would have brought him down to the ground and have a almost like, I guess you would call it a wrestling-like pin, a half, a half mount or a full mount. The person would not be able to strike or kick or get out or bite. The officer would not be hitting, punching, kicking, choking or anything, and it would have like a turtle on the back with the shell until the person, the more they struggle, the more they poop themselves out when yeah. they're calm, yeah. then have other officers assist and put the handcuffs on if needed. Yeah. That's what he said that they're training officers around the country to do instead. No strikes, no punch, no kicks, no batons, no pepper spray, no taser. That when you're trained, you have the confidence that you can handle it. You're not going to escalate out of insecurity. All right, James, what else do you want to say? Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, I think that a lot of our uh, officers today, when they're going to train for the stressful situation, they, in their minds, know that they're going to be tested for a stressful situation. I think there's got to be a way to train the officers where they don't know that they're going to be trained for a stressful situation and see how they react. Yeah. Good suggestion, James. Thanks for calling in. 805-543-8830. 800-549-5832. Author and psychologist Dr. Larry Lockman back on this broadcast talking about policing in Memphis and the notion of groupthink and the consequences. Jack is in San Luis on KVEC. Hi, Jack. Hi. Good afternoon, Dave. Hey, Jack. Hi, Russ. Um, you know, I was going to say the main thing I noticed in all these incidents there was a. You're breaking. Uh, there was, you're breaking up, Jack. Oh, Start again. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes there's a. People go off in tandem. Say either we have to go way overboard and defund the police, or we have to go way overboard and. And. Uh, uh, but I think in all things with policing or any other job, you have to have constant evaluation in your department who's ever in charge of leadership has to evaluate how the people are doing things, how are they dealing with the customer, uh, and and so forth. Because if you don't reevaluate what you're doing and your tactics on a regular basis, you are going to be off your mark when it comes to a situation that you need to, this critical critical situation. And, that's, and this happens in business and everything. People don't evaluate their business, don't evaluate what's happening and what the people are doing out there and how they're treating the customer and so forth, then they lose the business. Let, let's get a uh, comment from Larry. Larry, what about what Jack's arguing? Yeah, it was uh, a little hard to hear him, but I think his point is, you know, the leadership in these departments need to spend the money. Um, the video that I sent you, um, Dave, featuring uh, Henner Gracie talking about their Gracie survival tactics for law enforcement officers, they showcased the Marietta, Georgia Police Department. And they had a lot of injuries with suspects because of the kind of stuff we saw with Memphis. And they had a lot of injuries with the police officers. 
So they finally got the leadership to put the money together, a fraction of what they do on firearms training and qualification, and the officers were going through the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu tailor-made for law enforcement. That had a 53% drop in injuries during arrests to suspects. Wow. And the video that I sent you is entitled Real Sports with Brian Gumbel, Force for Change, HBO, on YouTube, and they highlight that. Um, so, yeah, I would agree that the leadership has to implement one of the things that the major at the Marietta, Georgia Police Department said is, yeah, we spent all this time and money on firearms training at the range and qualifications and almost nothing on hand-to-hand combat. Mm. Jack, what else do you want to say? Yeah, I think that's a, a, a good uh, specific thing to do. And also, they have to keep in contact with each police officer and evaluate them and talk to them and see where their state of mind is at. Yeah, well, it'd be inter- a critical job. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what Memphis does in terms of regular evaluation of police. Good point, Jack. Thanks for sharing it. Danny's in Napomo on KVEC. Hi, Danny. Hi. Hi. So, um, from what I understand, there was a real lack of seniority or um, service time within this this cohesive unit, and. Where was the where was the leadership? Where was the alpha dog? I, I, I don't understand how this cohesive unit didn't have a leader. But do we know anything about it? Was there a leader to all this, Larry? Uh, that's interesting. Uh, what's the caller's name again? This is Danny. Yeah, Danny. Uh, I noticed that too, Danny. Um, they they seem to be a little bit fragmented, disorganized. Um, complaining about their the leg, the pepper spray, the glasses. I didn't see anyone take charge, including with the fire rescue. And so that goes back to that group thing, lack of proper procedures in a stressful situation with a tight, cohesive group. And, you know, people serve in the military, you, you follow the chain of command. It doesn't seem like there was cohesion there. And I, I agree. I was looking for some supervisory officer, watch commander, field sergeant, whatever, to go in there and step in, and I didn't see that. Danny? That's, that's why I brought that up, because with our training, even in an accident, the first thing you do is you look at somebody and you tell them, call 911, go out and wait for the ambulance. So somebody usually takes leadership of, of a situation like that, and I would think would say, knock it off, that's it, that's enough. Well, we didn't see that in Memphis. Uh, thanks for calling. Although it begs the question, I'm sure this will all come up at some point, Dr. Lockman, is why, why were, were five officers assigned to a specialized team, Scorpion, involved in a reckless driver? Well, that's a good question. You know, And again, we saw the acronym to try to promote peace and safety in our neighborhoods. And, and we don't have... I mean, it's it's curious we don't have either dash cam footage or a body-worn footage of what led to the initial pullover and stop, and, you know, because they're saying probable cause, he was reckless driving, uh, he was reaching for my gun, you know, all these kind of things. And I think the article you sent me, well, one of the articles I read, you know, when former police officers look at the video, they don't necessarily see an intention to reach for a gun, but when you're flailing around without the proper techniques and you're getting upset and you're losing your cool and arms and legs are going everywhere, uh, it's easy for a suspect's arm to go past different parts of the body. 
There's only so many ways, Bruce Lee said, until they, you know, make someone with three arms and three legs, you know, human beings all fight similarly. And so if you come up with a system that neutralizes, someone once said the previous call, you know, officers are not prepared. They don't know what to expect. But there's only so many ways someone's going to come after you. They're going to either kick you, punch you, elbow you, bite you, try to put you in a headlock or try to tackle you. And so you train for those things over and over again so it's rote muscle memory with the least amount of force. And so the solution that the Gracie family are promoting with their defensive tactics for police officers is stay calm, be in control, use the very least amount of force to contain, mount, and immobilize the person until they calm down. Don't immediately try to turn them over on their stomach and pounce on them. You know, you can cause a respiratory problem with the chest not being able to expand and compress, and then that allows them to get their feet under them. just doesn't make sense. So lack of training, it comes back to that. Lack of supervision. Uh, maybe as you were kind of alluding to just now, Dave, a lack of mission or mission creep. On the Stolberg Tatum text line, new report on the news says that Tyree had Crohn's disease and was very thin. Could being thrown to the ground on stomach trigger pain so fear response to run? Yes, that could be. And, you know, compared to the officers who were pretty bulked up and wide-shouldered, uh, you know, he was pretty thin and tall. And so having all those officers, you know, do that brute force, you know, just it was a mess from the beginning to the end. And, you know, there's, there, there's no excuse. He didn't have a gun. He didn't have a machete. He wasn't right. trying to drive over the officers. He wasn't threatening to right. kill them. And, again, with someone of his stature, with right. his physical ailments, with the proper right. training, it would have been calm, controlled right. from the beginning. Let me you know, squeeze can in. You step out of the car? Right. Can we talk? Let me uh, talk to Vita. Hey, Vita. Hi. Hi. Oh, thanks for taking my call. You called it group thinking. I think of it as mob mentality, and maybe you did refer to it that way. Um, I did have the occasion to work in correctional institutions and saw takedowns many times. Most of them really, really done very, very well in this community, I would say. But the one time that I remember something getting out of hand, um, the officer put his uh, knee on the person's chest and was obviously obstructing the, you know, the breathing and had to be told by the nursing staff to remove. You know, it's not an easy thing to do in that situation. But um, I just think, it, you know, was he under the influence of anything? Because to my mind, they need to know, and I did not hear that he was under the influence of anything. Do we know if he was, under, someone the, who was under Was he under the influence, Larry? Alcohol, well, the drugs? The autopsy report in toxicology has not been released yet. Yeah, and they, they certainly should know, and I believe they do, that any time you encounter, you know, a, a situation and a person may be under the influence of some, some, some substance, they're going to act irrationally and they're going to probably fight you back. And why six officers or however many there were could not control one man, that's just unbelievable to me. We're out of time, Vito. Thank you very much for calling in. We'll come back and get a final thought from Dr. Lockman. I'm Dave Congleton, where Dr. Larry Lockman gets exactly 30 seconds for a final thought. So, better training. When I was a psychiatry aide in the lockdown unit for 
uh, children. We would get called up to the adolescent unit when someone was a danger to themselves or others. Uh, one individual smashed some glass, had a glass shard, was cutting himself, was threatening staff. We had no weapons, obviously. We had a plan. One person took point. We had a mattress-like uh, device, and we would rush the person, contain them so they couldn't keep cutting. They couldn't strike us. We didn't strike them. And then the nurse gave them an injection and then put them in a restraint until they were calm. So there's ways... We got to go, Larry. A valid situation. Thank you, Larry Lockman. Back on the other side with Mike White. I'm Dave Congleton. The 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kbec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911.